Well, it is so good to be with you. Uh, this is uh, just a real treat for us, a joy to be here. We love this church. Um, in fact, I got to tell you, the last time I was here, none of you were here. <laughs> I pre pastor, this is so different. There's people out there. I don't know if I can get used to this. I I was here and spoke, and they recorded a message uh, when uh, during COVID, and it literally was empty pews, and uh, so I had to pretend people were out there, and uh, so it's so much better. I'm glad you're here today. This this should be so much easier, I hope. And uh, so this church, you you don't know the connections. I mean, we've been involved with Webster for a long time. And we do training all over western New York and a little bit of Pennsylvania. And I tell everybody about this church because you have absolutely amazing, I'm, I'm, they didn't pay me to say this, but amazing leaders that are doing such an amazing job with your kids. Uh, I come and I sit under, you know, Dave Welker, um, Craig, and, and leaders in there that just are so unbelievable with the kids. In fact, I'll sit there, Pastor, and I get so involved in the lesson that I forget I'm the missionary, and I, you know, I start drooling, and I'm listening, and I'm like, oh, that's right, I'm not one of the kids. And then I go home, and I want to write a message on whatever they taught me, because it's so amazing. And then I go to the gopher buddies, and Luke is... And, and the leaders there are just unbelievable with those children. Um, when I do training, I just I tell them what you guys do here, you know. And I say you got to go with me to Webster sometime and just see what they're doing. And the team group and the leaders there uh, are just so good with the students. Uh, and I want to thank you for that. That's what you're doing is making such a mark and making such a difference. Um, I thank God for your pastors, uh, Pastor and Ruthie, have become dear friends. And uh, so much appreciate them and what God is doing here. Uh, and I, I've one story, I've got to get going, but I have one more story. Um, the church I grew up in, uh, out in Conklin, New York, the other side of New York State. Uh, my mom has since passed away, but just I think last week I was going through her Bible and I found a bulletin in her Bible and I pulled the bulletin out. And it was a week that I was doing my deputation preaching at Little White Church in Conklin, New York. And in that bulletin at the bottom was pray for, it was one of our students. Uh, actually, she was in my junior high Sunday school class. And it was pray for Renee Warren because she's going to stay with the Erblins up in Webster, New York. And she's doing her student teaching at Webster Bible Church. And I'm looking at this bulletin from, I don't know, it was 100 years ago, I guess, but... <laughs> It, uh, and I, so I had to show Lori, I was here the other week in club, and I said, you got to see this. I don't throw anything out. And here was a bulletin in my mom's Bible about Webster Bible Church. Un unbelievable. God is so absolutely amazing. And I, I could go on and tell you a lot of stories, but we got to get into the book of Jude. I got to cover the whole book of Jude in the next 20 minutes here. So uh, put your seatbelts on. In fact, uh, the ushers have, if you didn't receive, there's actually an extra insert with notes, and the ushers have a whole bunch of them. If you didn't get this, uh, if you would just raise your hand, and uh, they're going to come right up the aisle and pass those out because. I'm probably not going to finish, and you're just going to need these notes to go home and get the rest of it And uh, from the book of Jude. Amazing, amazing book. Um, i got to tell you, it's, it's a book that has changed my life. Uh, I have read and I have studied. I've read everything I could find on the book of Jude. It's only one chapter. Um, and I have read and studied this. In fact, I have preached through this book in five different churches, and I'm going to scare you now because I have six messages on the book of Jude. And uh, we're going to do it in one. So this is going to kind of be an overview. I've never done this before, Pastor, so I'm a little scared here. And the outline is mine. Um, after preaching through and studying this for several years, um, the outline actually came fairly easy because I already had done a lot of work on Jude. But it's an amazing, amazing book. And it starts out, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. 
may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amazing book. And and I'm going to kind of go through this as an outline because the first thing I want to talk about is the person, the person, Jude. An interesting um, one who would write this book because he was the brother of James. Uh, There's a number of Judes in the Bible, but I believe with all my heart that this is the brother of James. In other words, the half-brother of Jesus. And I want you to think about that. I believe he's writing to us as believers because he's talking about those that are called and beloved and kept for Jesus Christ. Well, I could only describe us. So he's writing to people who know God, I believe. But the fact that he identifies himself as a servant tells me that he's had a major change of heart. He's not the same person that walked beside Jesus. When he was a brother of James and brother of Jesus, he didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. In fact, it's kind of an interesting thing that he would write a book. Because there were times when the brothers of Jesus were outside of a house where Jesus would be ministering. And I think they were outside kind of thinking, oh, like, what is he going to say now? You know, he's, he's, off his, he's out of his mind. He's, he thinks he's God or he's, he says he's from God. And he didn't believe. He, he, there was one occasion where Jesus, they said, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus said, well, who are my mothers and my brothers? There was a time in his ministry when he had to kind of walk away from that, and they were going to have to do what they do because he needed to do what he did, and that was to be about his father's business. I, I can't imagine, because growing up in a house like that, Jude beside his brother who never did anything wrong. I had a brother like that. (laughs) I actually had a couple of sisters like that. Never did anything wrong. He, he, He never saw him rebel. He never saw him say anything or think anything that was out of place. He was always the perfect one. Jesus was. And in Jude, very skeptical, doesn't really think he's God, from God. He never saw Jesus lose his temper. He never saw him instigate something, you know, like brothers do sometimes. <laughs> and uh, something happened to Jude. Well, you and I know what that was that happened because after Jesus was crucified, he rose again. And all of a sudden, you see your brother walking around <laughs> doing more ministry. You have to realize that he is who he said he was. And Jude has gloriously changed, incredibly changed. So it's interesting that Jude would be called upon to write this book. And Jude starts out that mercy would be uh, multiplied upon you and peace upon you and love upon you. And the picture is almost like this. It'd be like if I were to come and put a a wreath around Pastor Matt's head and and were to say, oh, that that mercy could be multiplied upon you. And then the thought is kind of like mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And and then peace upon peace upon peace. And, And love upon love upon love. Those three things are so important. And I think they're also really necessary when you get into something really heavy like the book of Jude. We need to remember who we are and and what God has done for us and what he's blessed us with because we're about to cover some stuff that's really deep and really troubling. And so the person that's writing, Jude, and um, and then the purpose for writing. This is interesting to me. I love verse 3. Uh, the purpose for writing. It was not to, 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 to pursue a discussion of our salvation, although I think that's what Jude has become really excited about at the point of time that he's writing this. Jude, in fact, he says, I, I gave all diligence. I, I was eager to write to you. That's what it says in verse 3 about our common salvation. Jude is, is, as he's starting out, he says, what I'd really like to talk to you about is salvation. That, if I had my choice, that's what I'd write about. And I, every time I study a book or a verse, I, when I read something like that, I wonder, well, why, why would he write that? Why would he, before he tells us what he's going to write about, he tells us what he wants to write about. And I'm thinking, well, why is salvation so important to him? And it doesn't take long to figure that out because you really think about it. And Jude is saying, listen, 
In fact, it reminds me of our basketball marathons. One year I did a basketball marathon in Brockport. They don't let us speak at our own events for obvious reasons. We're so worn out from running the event. So we always have to bring in a speaker. And the speaker called me. We're at Brockport. We've got like uh, 500 basketball players there. And we have them sit on the floor at noon and after they've been playing basketball. And we just preach the gospel and, and kids get saved. And I get a phone call. This is, we're halfway through the morning. I get a phone call, and, and we were having a nor'easter come through, and the speaker's from Word of Life, and he says, Rod, he says, you're marathon today. I said, yeah, you're my speaker. And I said, yeah, I know, I can't make it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You're my speaker. And I think it was like the director of Word of Life or something, you know. It's like, so I was being very kind to him, but I'm thinking, how could you do this to me? I got 500 kids out there, and we've got to preach the gospel. So I remember hanging up the phone and I told my wife, go get our, our two guys that are running the gym. They've got to run the gym. I've got to go lock myself in a room and get a message ready. And so we did. And one of the, and I'll, I'll remember, I had to speak at that marathon and I, I started sharing the gospel. But one of the things we always uh, tell our counselors is that when it comes to preaching the gospel, that, I mean, the thing that's important is that we help them understand that salvation is a personal decision. It's placing my faith in Christ. I, I'm not saved because someone else is saved. I'm not. It's always, I have to make a personal decision. If, if I'm born in a Christian home, it doesn't mean I'm a Christian. And I'm thinking through that. And I'll, I'll tell you the rest of what happened at that marathon. But Jude says, I really, really wanted to write to you about salvation. And I think I know why. Because he lived in the very house of Jesus right beside him. And he almost missed it. You understand? Jesus is our Savior. He grew, Jude grew up in that house. Had he not come to the realization that Jesus is my Savior, he would have been cut off from God forever in a different place. How tragic that would be to grow up right in a home where the gospel is so clear and almost miss it. So Jude says, I really, really wanted to write to you about common salvation. That's another thing that tripped me up when I studied this. I thought, common salvation? I think about that, and I'm, I'm like, first of all, I've kind of misunderstood the word, because I mean, I'm thinking, what's so common about salvation? Do you realize what happens to you the moment you accept Christ as your Savior? You go through the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's unbelievable. I'm forgiven of my sin. I could spend an hour on that. I, I've given the Holy Spirit. I've given an inheritance. I'm, I'm adopted. I'm chosen. I, the list goes on and on. I heard a message one time. There's something like 17 things that happen to you the moment you get saved. You don't even know it. You just know Jesus. And all of a sudden, so I'm thinking, what do you mean common salvation? Well, think about it. I asked this question the other week. I was talking to a group, and I, and I asked the question. They said, can you get saved at the age of 80? And somebody said, well, of course. Said, That's right. I said, can you get saved at the age of five? <laughs> and one, one lady spoke up. She says, I got saved at the age of four. I said, oh, no, that can't happen. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I said, yes, you can. <laughs> and I said, so what's common about our salvation? Anybody can come to know Jesus because it's all through faith in Christ. It doesn't matter what I've done. It doesn't matter how much I have. It doesn't matter who I know unless it's knowing Jesus. There is something about our common salvation. It doesn't mean just simple because salvation is profound. But it is, there is something common. And then Jude says, that's what I wanted to write to you about, is your common salvation. But he said, I found it necessary to write to you about something else. So that tells me, I know how important salvation is. So that tells me there's something really important about what Jude wrote. And he said that I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith 
which was once delivered to the saints. Salvation, yes, is extremely important, but so is it to stay with it, to stick with it, to understand what the faith is, and to know our doctrine, to know our teaching. Churches like Webster Bible Church are extremely important because you're teaching children, you're teaching teens, and you have amazing pastors who are delivering the word every week. And folks, we need to be here. We need to hear it. And we need to understand what God has said. And we need to protect it. And we literally need to contend. We need to fight for the faith. Like it really matters. It's really important because it really is. Jude says, I'd love to write to you about common salvation. But it was necessary for me to write to you to talk about how important it is to contend for the faith. It's a military term. And so that is the purpose for his writing. We go on to the perpetrators, because not everybody believed that. There were certain people who were teaching wrong things. They were teaching error. And so the next thing that we want to understand is what this book is about and why Jude has become so passionate about it, because he says there are certain people, certain people, so they're real people. They're not a figment of our imagination. They're ungodly people. They're perverting the grace of God into sensuality. For certain people have crept in unawares who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a number of things about who these people are. There's certain people, they've crept in, and I mean crept in right in our church. Could there be someone of this description right in our church. Well, Jude thinks so. Says they're crept in unnoticed. Maybe they snuck in, but but in fact now I really think in our day they're really out in the open, not just snuck in. They're designated for this condemnation, meaning there's a long history of this. And they're ungodly people. They're people that we would call apostates who have come, they've heard the truth, but they've turned their back on it. They're perverting the grace of God. I had a student say to me, well, how do you pervert the grace of God? And I said, well, I know one way. That is to go around telling people it doesn't matter what you do because God will forgive you. So you can do anything you want and because God's grace will cover it. Well, that is in part true. God is absolutely amazing. I know what I've done throughout my life. And there is nobody more thankful than the grace of God than me. I do not deserve to be here in this place. I do not deserve the blessings that God has put on me. I know what I do deserve. I deserve to be punished in hell because of my sin. So I understand the grace of God, and I am very thankful for the grace of God. But make no mistake, Paul addresses this in Romans. He says, do we just go out and sin so that we would have more grace? Absolutely not. And people that make it sound like it doesn't matter what you do because God will forgive you tomorrow, that's perverting the grace of God. That's corrupting what God teaches about his grace. And that's what some men do. They corrupt the grace of God. And not only that, they deny our only Lord and Savior. They're confused about the deity of Christ and who he is. And God says that's a serious thing. And so... The perpetrators, they're out there, they're real people. And we need to defend the faith, and we need to make sure that our students know how to defend the faith. That's a whole message in itself. We move on in this message because there's a penalty. Jude wants us to be reminded about how God really feels about this. Make no mistake, this isn't something to be taken lightly. Jude, in the next three verses, gives us three examples of how God has seriously brought swift judgment on people who have turned their back on the truth and have walked away and have decided that it doesn't really matter. And so the next three verses, verse 5, 6, and 7, he says, now I want to remind you. So this is something they already knew about. He says, although you once fully knew this, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. When The children of Israel were rescued from Egypt. There was a great multitude that came with them. People who had really become very dear to the Israelites and became very good friends or neighbors. and There was a mixed multitude that came with them. 
And when the Jewish people left Egypt, a lot of this mixed multitude came with them. A very serious thing that the children of Israel did after they got into the wilderness is you remember what they started doing. Here they were, they were freed from Egypt. They don't get very far and they start grumbling and complaining. And I, I think I've counted, there was at least maybe 10 times that they started to murmur. Even the word murmur sounds awful. Murmur, murmur, murmur. It's just, you know, it's just, you know, all oh, that we had gone back to Egypt or had just been left in Egypt instead of coming out here to the wilderness to die. I think some of the naysaying came from the ones who came with them that didn't have the same faith they did. And, and they let that poison them in a sense. You know what God did? And Jude reminds us, he said, God destroyed many of them in the wilderness. They died in the wilderness. And the sin that they committed was really one of unbelief. They really didn't believe that God would take care of them. That's a serious thing, my friend. We need to take God at his word and, and to believe that he'll do what he said he will do. And, and Jude reminds us, he says, listen, they died in the wilderness. Do I need to remind you that God takes unbelief very seriously? And then he gives us another example in verse 6. He, he talks about in the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness under the judgment of the great day. Some angels rebelled and did something so horrible that I believe God imprisoned them. He says, you'll never do this again. I don't personally think it's just talking about the angels who fell with Satan. Now, there, there is a belief that that, and, and you may be on that side. That's okay. I happen to think it was angels that did something so horrible they tried to corrupt the human race. I think it goes back to Genesis chapter 6 when the world was so evil and everything was just evil continually except in the life of Noah. And God decided to destroy the world. Why would he destroy the world? Something so horrible was happening. He decided, decided to start over with the family of Noah. And I think, I think the angels who tried to corrupt the human race, he put in prison, and I think they're there today. I don't think he's talking about just normal demons that are free to roam and tempt us and do the things that they do. But that's my theory. I, I can't. Uh, there's theologians on both sides. I'm going to leave it right there. But Jude is saying, listen, God was very swift to deal with justice, and he, he took care of this. In fact, there's a lot more. I could go back to Genesis 6 and talk about that. I don't have time. And actually, it's a good thing. It's very controversial. So you'll just have to study that on, on your own and ask Pastor Matt uh, what he thinks, and um, he'll tell you. He'll straighten all of that out. But it's another example. It's... <laughs> Thank you. It's another example where Jude says, listen, God's going to deal swiftly if, for this whole idea of unbelief. And, and then he gives us a third example. This is even as powerful, if not more. He says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Listen, Sodom and Gomorrah is probably the most vivid example that I could give on how God deals with sin just, just swiftly. Sodom and Gomorrah, where he rained fire down from heaven and destroyed those cities and the area around them because of unbelief. They didn't believe and they were corrupting the human race. And, and so we use that even today as a picture of, listen, we've, I've heard evangelists say, God will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah if America gets any worse. Well, because we use that. It's a vivid example. And Judah's just saying, listen, the penalty for unbelief is, is to be taken seriously. Then you look at the personalities. It's interesting. Jude wants us to fully understand who these people are. This is so serious what false teachers do that he wants to make sure we really clearly understand. He says they're filthy dreamers. They defile the flesh. He says, yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Apparently, we don't know a lot about this, but apparently there was a battle between Michael and the archangel and Satan 
as to the body of Moses. God didn't want anybody to know where the body of Moses was. I think because they would have built a shrine over it, they would have worshipped his bones. Because that's what people do instead of worshipping the Creator. And so Michael stood up to Satan and apparently uh, there was a battle. That's all we know. But, but it's pointing out we need to show a very healthy respect for the demonic world. I mean, in the sense that not to talk foolishly or, or think that we can take on Satan by ourselves. That's dangerous territory. Even Michael only did what God told him to do. Michael the archangel is a very powerful angel. I, I think about these personalities, how they're identified by their misconduct. They were, they were filthy dreamers. They despised dominion. They speak evil of dignities. They rebel against authority. They have reckless conversations. Uh, it's interesting, um, verse 10 says, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, meaning they, they really are reckless with the mouth. Uh, the King James Version is kind of comical. It, it calls them brute beasts. And I remember standing it thinking, what is a brute beast? I've called my brothers and sisters all kinds of things. I won't talk about that any more than that. We'll leave that right there. I never called them a brute beast. But I think, you know what, the King James Version isn't really that far off. Have you ever heard of a dumb ox? I've heard people call someone a dumb ox. That's really the same thing. It's just an animal who doesn't know anything, you know. Well, that's, what, that's how Jude describes these people. Sometimes they, they rattle at the mouth and they just they carry on. I don't know if you've ever talked with a foolish person. And, uh, don't look at your spouse, okay? I already know what some of you are thinking. Don't go there. Um, I've had conversations, what, what I would say the Pro- book of Proverbs calls a foolish person. In fact, the book of Proverbs, there's a number of different fools in the book of Proverbs. One of them is a foolish person that God says, don't even debate with them. It's a waste of time. There is such a fool. And I think that's where these people are going. Um, let's talk about the practical jokers. They're imposters. They're faults. They're, they're deceivers. They're phonies. Um, I think we need to be reminded that, that there are uh, deceivers out there uh, that are dangerous. Look what verse 11 says. It says, woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now this is a whole message in itself, and I'm just going to give it in to you in a little summary. Woe to them means really pay attention to this. This is serious ground. Do you, do you remember the passage in Matthew where um, Jesus uses the word woe like, I don't know, a dozen times? He's talking to the, about the religious leaders. Because um, they were really uh, hypocritical in many ways. They were, they were somewhat characteristic of who Jude's talking about here in one sense. In fact, some of the harshest words Jesus ever used was against the re- false religious leaders of their day. Jude says, he used that same word, woe unto them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake... There's so many sets of three in Jude, it's unbelievable. Here's another set of three. Who is he talking about? Cain and Balaam and Korah. Cain represented the wrong way. He opposed the right way. He brought the wrong offering. He, he tried to come to God his own way. He, Abel had a, a, an accepted sacrifice. Cain did not. He, he's like, he wanted to think things out for himself and come. You know, the thing that I think about with Cain to wrap this, summarize this, is that who makes the rules? God does. Who created heaven? God. It's up to God to set the rules any way he wants. Who are we to tell God how we're going to get to heaven? I don't determine that. That's up to God. Cain says, I... I want to come to God a different way. God didn't accept this way. He was representative of the wrong way. Balaam was all about error, not truth. 
He was a prophet, yes, but a prophet for hire. He was a phony prophet. Apparently in the day you could hire a prophet. It's like, okay. And uh, so the children of Israel were, you know, conquering their enemies. And and an ungodly king decides, I'm going to hire Balaam and I'm going to ask him to curse God's people. Because it seems like every time I go to battle against him, they know where I'm going to be. And and I can't beat him, so I'm going to hire Balaam to curse him. So Balaam offers these words as a prophet. But all that comes out of his mouth is blessings for Israel. The king says, well, that's not working. And Balaam says, well, I, you know, I, I just, when I open my mouth, it's, it's just things come out to bless Israel. And Balaam did something really dumb, really stupid. He says, you know, listen, let me tell you something. There's a way you can defeat Israel. Just, just go intermarry with, you know, um, ruin their sons by, you know, marrying them with your daughters and and so they lured the sons of Egypt, and it, it was a dumb thing for Balaam to do. But he wanted the money. And so he wasn't about truth. He was about heirs. Cain was about the wrong way. Uh, Balaam was about heir. And then Korah. How does Korah fit into it? Well, Korah led the people in a division, and, and he was mixing truth with lies. And, and it was dangerous for the youth of Israel. And that, that they would turn their back and follow Korah. In fact, Korah, Korah brought a bunch of people with him. And remember what God did? He, he judged him swiftly, opened the earth, and he swallowed him. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near Korah because they went down. And Korah was all about death. You know, what's interesting is there's a verse in the Bible that refutes all of this. You think about it. Cain was the wrong way. Balaam was era. Korah was all about death. They perished. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, what did he say? I am the way, not Cain's way. I am the truth, not Balaam's false, his error, his phoniness. I am the way, the truth, and I am the life, not Korah who brought death. Isn't that amazing? John 14, 6 is exactly the opposite of verse 11 that these false teachers promote. That's why it's so important that we understand who these practical jokers were and that we aren't fooled by them. And then Jude goes on. Let, let's continue in verse 12. He says, these are hidden reefs at your love feast. Now this is a little complicated. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Jude now, he's like... He wants to make sure we don't miss who these people are. If they might be right here in our midst, then I've got to give you a really clear picture. And so what he does now is he gives us six pictures. They're what I call a, a metaphor. And I don't remember working that hard in English class, so I had to look up to see what a metaphor was. It's a word picture. A metaphor is a word picture. I don't, if you remember one of the soap operas a long time ago, shake your, I hope you don't remember it, okay? Because we don't want to go there. But there was a soap opera called The Edge of Night. There's no such thing as The Edge of Night. But it was a metaphor. It was a word picture to, to proclaim a certain truth. It's almost like a comparison. So Jude says, I'm going to give you six pictures that are metaphors, they're comparisons to help you understand what I'm talking about. The King James, the very first one, says there are spots in your love feast. And I'm like, what are spots in your love feast? That ESV really says it so much better. There's not as much you have to preach on because it already explains some of it. There are spots, they are hidden rocks. Speaking of danger, the danger that they are. My dad and I were fishing out on the St. Lawrence River. He was a great fisherman. I just wanted to drive the boat. So we had a 21-foot, 140-horsepower. It was awesome. And so I got in the boat, and my dad is in the back getting his poles ready, and he told me where to go at the end of one island. So we, we cast out our fishing, our poles, or he cast out his. I was really ready to move the boat. And uh, all of a sudden, I, I look over the side of the boat, and I'm like, Dad, Dad, there, there's like, we're drifting over this huge rock ledge. And both of us kind of jumped up, and he says, just lift up the trim, lift it way up. He says, we're going to ruin our propellers and back us out over this. You know what's so dangerous about shoals? You don't see them. 
You don't realize the danger that's there. And I was able to get my dad and I out of there, and that's a good thing because I wanted to keep driving the boat. And, uh, and we went, and he, he had us, we pulled in another spot to continue fishing. But I remember how much it shook me up. I'm like, well, we're, we're going to hit. And uh, they're dangerous. We don't realize the hidden dangers. They're spots. And, and it's kind of a double metaphor because they're spots in your love feast. They had these banquets, these fellowship dinners. They would, they would bring all their food together. And those of us that had a lot, we'd bring our food. And we were supposed to share it with everybody. But they were not getting it right. And, and actually, he talks about shepherds feeding themselves because they were gathering the food and instead of sharing it they were kind of like keeping it all to themselves that wasn't the whole purpose of the love feast and uh and so this the spots they're hidden rocks speaking of danger the love feast and speaking of pastors that were only feeding themselves you're blessed here because you don't you don't have that but then he goes on to talk about as well clouds without water I actually like clouds without water because I can mow my yard and get things done. But in, ag- in an agricultural country, you know what? Far- there's probably nobody that works as hard as farmers. They plow up the ground. They, they have to work the ground. They have to prepare the soil. They plant the seed. They, they work so hard. Their work is never done. But when they finally get it all planted, do you know what they have to do? Pray. Or rain. God, please bring the rain. Because that's the part I can't do. And and bring the rain and produce the fruit. And that, that's all a God thing. And then they see the clouds coming. Dark clouds. Yay! Then they just blow over. Swift winds just take them over. And they're, they're like broken promises. That's what apostates do. They promise you and they don't deliver. And that's so destructive. People lose their faith. So their spots are hidden rocks, their love feasts, their clouds without water. Then he talks about dead trees, verse 13. Wild waves of the sea casting up the, or actually the dead trees is still part of verse 12. Dead trees. And in the winter, they do look dead. Uh, John MacArthur says, no, these trees, they not only look dead, they are dead. They're doubly dead. They'll never produce anything. And then verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Two more word pictures and we'll move on. He says they're like wild, angry waves of the sea. I love walking the beach, but I don't like all the scum and debris that washes up on the shore. Wandering stars, stars and and uh, that era were very important because you used the stars to navigate. A shooting star is worthless as far as navigation. You can't follow it. And so those stars misdirect. They lead nowhere. And uh, what amazing word pictures. I love them. Jude says, I don't want you to be mistaken. They're out there. Well, then we look at the preacher. And uh, this part of Jude kind of threw me for like months in fact, King James says, and Enoch, like out of nowhere, you've, you've got all these descriptions, all these word pictures that are comparisons, and all of a sudden King James says, and Enoch, verse 14. I'm like, and Enoch, what? <laughs> it doesn't fit. Well, it does. Because verse 14 is another word picture, but it's not a comparison, it's a contrast. Think about it. Why does Jude even bring up Enoch? Listen, what have we been talking about? Kind of some ugly stuff. Listen to the list. Ungodly men, certain men, disobedient Israelites, disobedient angels, disobedient citizens, in Sodom and Gomorrah, filthy dreamers who defile the flesh, brute beast or dumb ox, whichever, uh, the error of Balaam, the way of Cain, the the gainsaying of Korah, six descriptive metaphors then of the danger of apostates, spots, hidden reefs, shepherds feeding themselves, clouds without rain, trees without fruit, raging waves of the sea, wandering stars like a flash in the pan. When I get through all that, I kind of feel like, yuck. It's all ugly. And Enoch. He gives us another word picture. But this isn't a comparison. It's a contrast. He's given us a lot of ugly. 
And then he talks about another preacher. Judas become a preacher. And Enoch is another preacher. He said Enoch preached about this a long time ago. In fact, we don't read a lot about Enoch. But what we know says it all. I find, I find two things about Enoch. So I searched the scriptures and what do I need to learn about Enoch? I couldn't find much. Really just a couple of passages. In Genesis, it talks just a little bit, a couple of verses about Enoch and then a passage in Hebrews. And I boiled it all down. I studied and I studied and I read everything I could. There's only two things I learned about Enoch. Enoch walked with God. He lived in a really dark time. All the way back in Genesis 6, you read it. Everyone was doing evil. But Enoch walked with God. And the one other thing I found was he pleased God. You know, you know what I decided, Pastor Matt? I'm reading that. I'm like, there's not much to read. But what it says, says a lot. If I get to the end of my life, and you were to say, you were to talk about Rod Whitney, and he was a guy who really walked with God, and he pleased God. That's all that matters, isn't it? I don't think anything else matters. And what Jude is saying is, listen, you know, we, we live in a crummy time. But you know what? This is also the best time to walk with God and to know God. We have no excuse. We have everything on our side. He's given us everything that we need that pertains to life. We read about that in other places. Enoch is an example of what we need to be. He's the preacher. I love it. Well, we got to go on. In fact, we even know what his message was. His message is in verse 15. To execute judgment on all. Enoch preached about this a long time ago. To execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's the word that stands out to you? ungodly you can't miss it Enoch's like listen stop living like that God's going to bring judgment that's what all the prophets were telling us God's going to judge sin don't pretend that it doesn't matter and don't act like it doesn't well we go on to the prophecy and the predictions we're, we're going to get through we're going to we're going to put your seatbelt on here we go what what were the prophecies and the predictions listen Jude says this but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I could take you to what Paul said. I could take you to what Peter said. They said to you that in the last time, there's going to be scoffers following their own ungodly passions, mockers, malicious in their own ungodly lusts, and immoral walking after their own beat. That's all I'm going to say about that right now, the prophecy. That's what they all told us in the Old Testament. God is going to judge sin. It's coming. Don't think it's not. The scoffers say, oh, those of you that think God's you know, going to straighten all this out, where is he? Well, he's coming. The principles. I think this is the application. I, I just love this. Jude gives us such an amazing application. This is what your leaders are talking to the kids about every week in club. Um, Dave Welker, you would, you would think maybe he gets a commission for everyone who he gets to do a quiet time. I praise God for these leaders because they're saying, get in the book, get in the book. Every week, God has something to say to you. If you don't get anything out of today, when you go home, would you please start reading your Bible a chapter a day, a few verses a day, get in the book. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, how do we build ourselves up? It's like, it's like disciplines. I see these bodybuilders. That doesn't happen overnight. You don't take a pill and the next day you've got these muscles ripping out all over the place. You have to work at it, and you've got to work at it continuously. I... I've been doing a quiet time for 40 years or better because I believe that God has something to say to me every day, not just on Sunday. And I want to know what he has to say to me. So building yourselves up, work at it. Praying, prayer is, is so important. We need to be a praying church. We need to be praying people. 
and uh, building yourselves up spiritually, prayer-filled people, spirit-filled people, God-centered people. He says, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. I, I heard that in Pastor Matt's prayer this morning and uh, praying for somebody. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We have to work at this. I, I've been in the ministry, I don't know, 30, I guess 34 years, seven years before that. It could all come crashing down with one mistake, just one. And I wouldn't be able to stand here anymore. I have so many friends in the ministry that have thrown in the towel. It breaks my heart. We saw 10 from our church in in Marilla, I saw 10 young people go into the ministry. And most of them are there still today. There's a few that aren't. And I, and I have very close friends that can't preach anymore. Breaks my heart. One mistake. It's not worth it. The principles, build yourself up. Listen to pursuit. And we're almost done. I love this. Jude starts out the book. I was so eager. I wanted to tell you about salvation, our common salvation, but it was necessary for me to write something else. It's almost like he goes full circle, and by the end of the book, he comes back to the very thing that's his heartbeat. He doesn't want anybody not to know Jesus and to miss it. And so he says, listen, and some have compassion making a difference. Verse 23, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. King James is a little different. I, I like the way the ESV has it because when you go back to the original language, he's really telling us about three different people. I heard a, an old-time preacher in Florida preach on this, this, these three verses, amazing. He says, you know, there's three kinds of people that we witness to out there. There are some that are just confused. They just need a little more information. You're witnessing to people. Don't stop. Don't give up. Please explaining the truth and, and living the example because there's some that are almost there. They're just a little confused. They're the ones that doubt and they're just not sure and they need a little more. But then there's some that need convincing. They're, they're a little tougher group. It's a second group. They're tougher. They require more effort. We're going to have to really pray for them because they're they're just really set in their ways. Maybe they brought up in and under another faith. So there's some that are confused. There's some that really need convincing. But there's some that need to be rescued. It's a third group if you go back to the original language. So he talks about others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Listen, there are some that are so corrupt. You have to be so careful. I remember Dave Welker using this illustration. He had so I think it was Dave, had someone stand in a chair and he had another kid come and he says, I want you to, uh, I want this guy to pull you up. And what those two kids demonstrated, it's easier to pull someone off the chair than it is to pull them up on the chair. And, and there are some people, we've got to be really, really careful because we can be, our garment can be spotted by the flesh. In fact, if you go into what that's talking about, it's pretty gross. He's saying, listen, evangelism is tough work and it needs to be done prayerfully. And there are some people that will pull you down before you pull them up. Don't go there. Be very careful. It doesn't mean don't tell them about Christ, but just use caution. ESV says, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Well, we've got to wrap it up. There's the promise and the point and then we're done. The promise is now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Listen, it's not all about us. It's all about him. To present you blameless. I, this is part of a teaching I don't, I don't fully understand. Someday, but what I do understand is someday I'm going to stand before God. And God is actually going to point to me and and he's actually going to use me as, as to, to, to make a, a truth. He's going to talk about how I'm blameless. I don't fully grasp that because I, I know what I've done. I know what thoughts sometimes I think. I, I know where my mind likes to go. Someday 
when we are accused before the brethren, Jesus is going to say, no, he's, he's blameless because he's been washed in the blood. I don't, I don't completely get that. I, I don't understand that. I, I don't deserve that. He says, unto him was able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless, no sin, and to present you as a trophy of his grace. I, Pastor, I, I, can you imagine that? It's like, God, you are so good to us. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. By the way, that's the whole point, isn't it? To the only God, our Savior. He's the only one that could do that. I can't do that for myself. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this closes us out. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now forever. Amen. It's a benediction that we often use. To the only God our Savior, it makes all the difference. It's why we can trust him. No matter what you're going through, it's going to be worth it all. I have not seen, you know, if we go back there. John Phillips makes a comparison. He's one of my favorite authors. He says, Balaam loved money. Enoch loved God. Korah went to hell. Enoch went to heaven. Cain went his own way. Enoch went with God. All that our enemy throws us, he's a phony, he's a counterfeit, it's duplicity, it's false and empty and broken promises, it's error and destruction and trickery and the wiles of the devil. Uh, the point is, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Glory is the sum total of all that God is and does. Majesty speaks of greatness and splendor and dignity. We, we've sung about that. Dominion is the sovereign ruler over all things. The power or authority is the right to use that power. Some entities might have the dominion temporarily, but they, they don't have the power to sustain the universe. God has all of the above, the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power. The book of Jude is absolutely amazing. The person, the purpose, the perpetrators, the penalty, the personalities, the practical jokers, the pictures that he gives us, the preacher, Enoch, the prophecy, the principles, the promise, and the point. Oh God, I, I can't wait to be with you. You're, you're so beautiful and so amazing. and We're so undeserving. Don't be tricked by false teachers. They destroy all of that. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that now unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.